This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find. Hi, I'm Misa. And today we're talking about The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. First published in 1881 in Canada and then in 1882 in the United States. Um, I, I'm sure I had read this as a kid, but I forgot most of it. Uh, had you guys read this before? No, I had oh, not. Oh, really? No, I hadn't. Oh, I did. But I think it was part of my Mark Twain obsession. I went through it one time where I got, I read every short story he ever wrote. And then most of the book, I mean, not the nonfiction, but the fiction, but like you, Jesse, I just remembered the broad strokes, not all the details. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny. Cause it, it is, uh, it's classified as realistic fiction or children's literature. And it, it, is dedicated to his daughters, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um, I was reading it with my, I read a cha- uh, chapter twenty two with uh, a class of students and you know teenagers, and it was I mean it's difficult language for them, um, but it teaches you. That's what's so fun about the reading these old books is uh, when he's using you know two synonyms in the same sentence. <laughs> it teaches you the vocabulary. Uh-huh. I, I didn't uh, think I didn't feel like this was a children's book. Mm-mm. It seems Me like either. it's a uh, high level for it children. is really high level. I, I, I read it, it as historical fiction. Yeah, yeah, it's but quasi historical fiction. I well, wouldn't that's, that's quasi historical, not really <laughs> historical, but <laughs> no, it's. But the I love the story behind it, which is uh, at least the introduction to my version said that, um, you know, he'd done Tom Sawyer, which definitely is kids fiction. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then so, his yeah. new wife was like, do something classier for heaven's sakes. And he's like, uh, okay, I'll do this. And he was kind of patterning it after Sir Walter Scott and Ivanhoe and all those kind of historical fiction, which were super popular at the time. And not having read those, I thought of Dickens because this exactly. is like Dickens light. So Dickens. And I, mm-hmm. it occurred to me that this would be for somebody who you want to lead into maybe trying Dickens sometime. This would be a wonderful introduction to that type of a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so because then I was thinking, well, yeah, Huckleberry Finn, they call it these days, at least uh, kids, children or at least teenager fiction. But I'm like, it was definitely for adults. Well, I think I think one of the things to remember, uh, I mean, this one it has it explicitly. It's to his daughters and young people of all ages is the dedication, right? So it's designed to be marketed for young people and everyone else mm-hmm. too, right? Which is fine, but um, I think any so, you know, if you look at the '80s, '90s, and early '70s. Anything that was public domain was marketed for children. <laughs> Just because the classics, right? Make your kids read the classics. Um, because it's just a way of selling. So you know, it was recast then? Yeah, but I, I mean, I think this one, it, it it's certainly appealing to kids. Um, well, kids, kids are the most sympathetic characters throughout. Like, yeah. Um, so... You know, but I, I was thinking that was more like his perception of kids as opposed to for kids. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one of the things that 
this is lacking compared to a lot of other Twain is sort of the the cynicism. Uh, not it's not really cynicism. So the wry cynicism. There, it's there, yeah. but it's much toned down. Well, it's not I mean, as this, biting. No, it's 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 more like he's he's an Anglophile, right? He's just loving, living, lo- loving, living in England. He's and, making a lot of he does make a lot of points, and he makes them more more obviously, I think, than in some other books. And and I was kind of thinking about him in terms of like Dickens, and I was like, oh yes, you've got Tom Sawyer, which is light and carefree. You have uh, this, which is a bit darker or more serious topics under the surface, right? How do we treat people and, you know, changing places shows you all that. And then, of course, you get The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which has got some very serious stuff. And it did, again, make me think of Dickens. And you've got, you know, the Pickwick Papers. And then you have something like, I don't know, of a good middle sample, like even Nicholas Nickleby is pretty early, but he's trying to address, or uh, is that the one? No, there's one where it's about, you know, how awful the kids' schools are in Yorkshire or something. And then, but it's still pretty light. They don't spend a lot of time there. And then, and that might be Nicholas Nickleby now that I think of it. Anyway, and then uh, you've got, you know, Bleak House and all those which are super wonderful, but they're very well developed. And it's maybe that's just the progress of an author as they find their voice. Yeah, Maybe this one. I mean, I I hadn't read it, but of course I knew the story. Like everybody knows the story, but it reminded me because it, it I mean, all that like Tom Sawyer and and Huck Finn are, are, you know, classics, but this one entered the popular culture like a fable. Like it reminds me sort of like mm-hmm. a, an extended Aesop's fable because it just became so entrenched in a, mm-hmm. in everybody's, you know, life. And it's been redone so, so, so many times. <laughs> it seems like way more times than any of his other uh, works. Now I'm just saying that out of the top of my head. I don't know that's true, but it seems like it. No, I, I agree. Um, I, I want to... Uh, there's sort of a meta issue I think I should address a little bit, just because um, <laughs> it's it's historical fiction, it's children's fiction. Where's the science fiction, right? Where's the fantasy? I was going to uh, ask you why you picked it. Yeah. So yeah, well, yeah. I have some ideas for that too. Go. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just give you my thinking, right? So, um, I I classify anything that I like as you know in the genre. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But <laughs> but I want. I, uh, a couple years ago, I did, I think it was a couple years ago, I did The Prisoner of Zenda, mm-hmm. which is set in a quasi-historical, no, it's a, it's set in a non-existent right. nation in Europe, right? Sort of hints so. Right. Uh, well, that's a, a sequel, but Zenda oh. is, is a, Sorry. is a <laughs> castle in Ruritania, which is somewhere <laughs> in Turkey and uh, Italy. I love that, yeah. Um, but, that book, I think, is directly inspired by this book um, because it's 10 years later. Is that, it? Yeah, it's 19, 1894. Oh. This book is uh, 1881. Okay. And um, this book also has uh, precursors, but I think uh, Misa has it right in saying that it sort of comes out as a fable, as a classic immediately and mm-hmm. continues on down the road. So. On down the road, we've got that Ringo movie that <laughs> talking about TV movie. Mice, you want to give us the pricey on uh, Ringo? Uh, well, um, Ringo, he, the uh, 
his alternate, Ringo Starr is Ringo Starr, and he's about to do a concert, and of course he's kind of, his his promoter wants him to do all kinds of stuff, and he's bored, he just wants to go out into the town, and uh, his alternate is, gives tours of famous people's houses, and, and, um, and of course his father is the same, is the same father, he beats him up, and he, and, and, um, and so they trade place. The alternate's girlfriend is is Carrie Fisher. Like the, it's like oh, uh, and and so they trade places. And and the poor alternate, he says, just stay here, just stay here. I'm gonna go, you know, live out in the town where you live, and you, I'm mean, you nothing. You don't have to do anything. I'll be back in half an hour. But in the meantime, his his uh, promoter puts him on television, and the poor he can't play the drums. He can't do anything. He looks ridiculous. <laughs> like it's so. It's like a. But they do like the whole Monty Python thing. Like they have mm. the big hand pointing down and and George Harrison tells these <laughs> like deadpan, ridiculous jokes. It is really 1977 when it when they're or eight or something. It's just it's just so much fun. They, I they was just, just wondering if, like, if you liked it. OK, I've got to find what's it called? It's on YouTube. OK, it's called Ringo. OK, then songs in it. And like, it's just, you know. I I want to read the description because I think it's hilarious on Wikipedia. This Ringo is a 1978 TV movie starring Ringo Starr as both fictionalized version of himself and his fictional half brother, Ognir Rats. And that is Ringo Starr backwackwards, right? Oh. Oh. Didn't even realize that. Um, There's one, uh, it looks like there's been an edit since I last saw it because it said, um, (laughs) it used to say, is a fictionalized version of himself and his talentless half brother. <laughs> thinking, wait a second, isn't that what people say about Ringo Starr? Is that he's talentless, right? Yeah. Or something? He's Poor like Ringo. The... Yeah, exactly. I don't believe it. I know. I mean, um, I think I think he's been maligned. Yeah. Um, probably. Well, Paul McCartney did go in and and redo his drum stuff a lot of the time, evidently. Wow. But oh. Paul McCartney was a perfectionist. I feel like. But so. yeah. You, you, you were saying it had uh, Carrie Fisher. It also has Vincent Price. Yeah, apparently. Vincent Price. Oh, John Ring, Ring, Ritter was the manager. It was just right. talk full of fun. It sounds. Have I not really, seen this? This is amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there's The Prince and the Pauper. There's uh, Ringo, the 1978 movie. There's The Prisoner of Zenda, which is uh, adult man switching places with his. A mm-hmm. uh, very, very distant cousin who looks identical mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and preceding all of this is The Man in Iron Mask, which is um, by Alexander Dumas, I think. Oui. And um, that has a, an, another king sort of half-brother twin or something like that. But I think what it time? really oh. all goes back to to this book. So that was after Twain also? No, it was before Twain, okay. but it, it's not the it's that is it's not the focus there. Right, so right, and I know basically the story, yeah. Right, um, but when Heinlein, if you look at Heinlein's career, he wrote a lot of interesting books, mm-hmm. um, and there's a couple that one of the ones that I thought was really terrific when I read it uh, was Double Star, which is the his first Hugo winning novel. Right. And that's about a an actor who replaces uh, the oh. King of Mars, yeah, um, who becomes sick and he just lives in that role for the rest of his life. Hmm. But he sort of becomes that person as well, and it's it's told first person perspective. It's uh, a take on this 
sort of mm-hmm. phenomenon of the the king being replaced by a uh, someone who isn't the king and how what's that like sort of point of view character um, phenomenon. But he also wrote one called Citizen of the Galaxy. My favorite. Is, it's a great book. It's my favorite Heinlein. And it's about a a boy who is a professional beggar um, who goes off into the universe and has adventures. But there's no uh, twin to replace him. There's no twin there. No, there's no twin there. Hmm. Um, So, but I think the influence of Twain is in SF. There's a novel by um, Heinlein that is obviously uh, a take on Three Men and a Boat by Jerome (laughs) K. Jerome. Yeah. There's an, a novel, I think, very much influenced by Prisoner of Zenda, right? And I think Citizens of the Galaxy is not, uh, you know, it's not a redo of of that, but it's a redo of parts of this. Right? Yeah, meh, maybe. Um, but, but you also get that type of a story all the time. I mean, you know, you've got Great Expectations, David Copperfield. It's, you know, the young man who's going off and finding himself through being forced into all these other circumstances. And so... Um, that's not as directly related. No, no, it's not directly related, but yeah. it's in this continuum. And I, and I just want to say that what my uh, daughter, who's like 27, I said, oh, Prince of the Pauper. She goes, oh, I remember the wishbone, you yeah. know. Oh, uh, yeah. Wishbone. Oh, the, uh, the, yeah, cart- the dog, dog who was always <laughs> dressed up. And she goes, that was one of the best, my favorite wishbones. I was like, because everybody loves that story. Even when it's got a cute dog with a little velvet cap, it's even better. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so it's made its way way down into the culture. Yeah. Yeah, and there's two there's two movies also that um, are the exact same story, right? Um, Dave is the one everybody oh yeah members where the president's sick and oh, yeah. he's replaced by an Kevin actor Klein. Right. Right. Kevin Klein. That's right. Um, and isn't um, who's who's his first lady Sigourney Weaver? Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. That's right. Um, and. I wouldn't say that's a classic, but it's certainly yeah. kind of movie where you don't mind watching it again if it's yeah, you know, fun. yeah, yeah, it's fun enough. Uh, but I prefer uh, Moon Over Parador, uh, which is um, the same story as Dave, except set in a banana republic. I didn't uh, see it. I've oh, yeah, seen that. Um, Moon Over Parador is fun because it, it's got that you know banana republic thing, but. Um, Who's the actor? Jeez, that's a great movie. <laughs> I'm blanking on. He was in Jaws. Uh, Ray you know. Dreyfus. Sorry. She said Ray. She probably said Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. Who Richard Dreyfus? Who I hate it. so much. So yeah, that's probably why I missed it. Well, he plays an act, a New York actor. He's probably uh, good in that, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very fun, and um, so all. In that continuum where you've got a false person uh, taking over the role, it sort of fits in there. And the other reason I wanted to do it is because this book, that is, is because um, I did Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Right. Yeah. And that's a time travel book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it was fabulously fun. Um, mm-hmm. what, what surprises me is that Mark Twain does his research. Um, that book is highly researched, and then he completely diverges from the reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this book is highly researched, too. There's footnotes everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it matches the reality 
every place except where he says, yeah, this part's not real or this part's made up, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, like Edward is a real person. Um, Lady Lady Jane Grey mm-hmm. is a real person. And Elizabeth, um, yeah. Elizabeth and yeah. Mary. And he does some amazing little fun things in here that I want to talk about, but I've been talking about why I'm defending why I wanted to talk. I, about I had an, I had another addition to your, your, Go uh, for it. because I have to bring in Star Trek when I can. Yeah. <laughs> mirror, Please. mirror, mirror, mirror is this. Of course. Star Trek. Oh, right. Beyond all that, like it's, it, it, cause the whole parallel universe thing I think comes from that. So you go all the way to freaky Friday and 13, oh, yeah. 30. Yeah. Like, you know, there's so much that I don't know if he's the first that ever did this, but mm-hmm. it, it just blossomed into so many avenues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just uh, fantasy. Even, it's fun. even the movie fantasy. Big, right, with uh, what's his name? Uh, you remember that movie Big where a 13-year-old oh, boy yeah, yeah. goes in yeah, and Tom Hanks' body? But I, I have a question. He says... Mm-hmm. Um, it, he says it may be history, it may be legend, a tradition. It may have happened, it may not have happened, but it could have happened. Is he the first one to do a? Do you know if he's the first one to do a swapped identity, or or is this like like a fairy tale that somebody finally wrote down that that it, trope? So it is the first uh, that really is genre defining in the sense that it it really does what it says on the tin. Everything <laughs> preceding this um, is. It's there, but it's not really the same thing, right? Kind of like the Man so, in the Iron Mask, where it's it's part of the story, but it's really yeah, not the yeah. main. But it has. We're not looking exactly. at the two people and their experiences, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Prisoner of Zenda sort of takes it off in a different direction yes. with adults, romantic but adventure. Is, but yeah, this is the one that's Freaky Friday and all the all the parody versions. Um, I saw the monkeys too. The monkeys. <laughs> that was the monkeys a lot did one. Too. Yes, they did. Was it an episode of their show it was or just an episode? It was twenty-five minutes of ridiculous. That's the, mon- the monkeys. That's why they were so great. And the monkeys are a fake version of uh, uh, of the Beatles. Yes. Right? Oh, there you go. That's I pretty bad. I don't care. They were great. <laughs> I'm don't. not saying that they were. I'm not saying they were, they were bad. I'm just saying they were fake. Oh my gosh! Yes, they were fake. They were wonderfully fake. Yes. Um. Well, the other thing, and you mentioned that the realism. I can remember. I got to the end of this book, and I'm like, oh notes. I'm like, oh yeah, notes. And then I'm like, oh holy crap! He wrote these notes. Mm-hmm. This is him talking about it's reasonable to regard the dress as oh, copied from the reasonable. costume of whatever. And I'm like, wow. I knew he did his research when he did his Joan of Arc book, which is really famous um, among Catholic circles and um, in a good way. But I didn't realize he really, really went into that level of detail for these sorts of books until I was reading this one and saw those notes at the end. He's got a he's got a lot of he relies on a couple of books really heavily. But yeah, but um, I, I think that he does such a good job with. Uh, first of all, it's incredibly well plotted. You guys. Yes. Going back and re-listening to the beginning of the audiobook after listening to the end. Um, and I, I was thinking about those early scenes and he does such a great job. He, this is even paralleled in, uh, in prisoner of Zenda, uh, just over 10 years later. Um, 
right right before the main character prisoner Zenda uh, meets the prince, um, he falls asleep and dreams uh, uh, a life of you know being a, a king, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Um, Tom, we are told, uh, oh, right, is already acting the king mm-hmm. in awful court. Yes. Yeah. He he has his own court there, right? And then he goes and meets the prince, um, gets bashed around, and then um, goes to sleep and wakes up, and he's he's still in the <laughs> clothes, right? And then everybody says he's crazy. Um, and then if you see what happens to the actual uh, Edward, right? Um, he is crazy too, mm-hmm. yeah, right. And then later on, he, he is crowned king of the Gamecocks and King Fufu. Yeah, that's right. That's wow. Yeah. And he has his court, and it's so well plotted. Well, yeah. The other thing that struck me that I would not have ever noticed when I read it as a, a kid or teenager or whatever was not only is that incredibly well plotted as a mirror journey for these guys. But you've got Miles Hendon, the adult oh, man yeah. who says, well, he humors, you know, poor Prince Edward, who's because he's crazy to think he's king. But his plot is yep. also parallel to Prince Edward's. He's been yes. cast exactly. out by a usurper and mm-hmm. he's being, you know, thrown in jail eventually. I mean, all these things that are happening to him. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, he wasn't content with just the main thing. Let's put this in here, too. It's yeah. it, it, it's I love and it, it goes really deep, you know, um. Very early on, we we get a uh, mention of Tom's brother. Uh, sorry, two sisters. Yeah. One's named Nan. The other's named Bess. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I didn't think of that. I and wow. Uh, well, Elizabeth. Edward has his own two sisters, mm-hmm. both half sisters, right? One yeah. is Mary, and the other is Bess <laughs> or Elizabeth, as we call her mm-hmm. today. Um, and of course we don't hear much from them in either of their adventures right except um that we do get a little bit of the uh of lady jane gray mm-hmm. um lady jane gray uh, actually is queen before mary uh and queen before bess so everybody in his court uh and his family gets to be king or queen for a day <laughs> yeah Lady Jane uh, is the one that the real Edward nominated as the his successor. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. He died at like age 15, right? Um, and she was queen for nine days or something. Then Mary uh, is queen. She tries to revert the, right. back to Catholicism. And then they kick her out and uh, get in Elizabeth. In Elizabeth, yeah. And she reverts back to Protestantism and such. All with a vengeance uh, all down the line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the so the other thing that I I think is interesting about this book, not in plot wise, but in what is focused on, is you notice how much pain is going on in this book. There's a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And torture and and unjust punishment and superstition. Um. That was that partly why he wrote it though. To. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's continually making points about that sort of thing, too. I mean, he'll he'll make points about, oh, the psychological irony of, you know, the poor kid who's now 
treated as the prince and later the king who's like hating every second of it. <laughs> but there's also, yeah, the, and he'll, and he'll make the points about how ridiculous it is. And this is when Edward has his chance to see, and he says every prince or every king should live by the laws of his subjects for a little while to see what's really going on, because that's when he becomes kinder and gentler, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. evidently wasn't really true. Unfortunately, I was really bummed out when I was a kid to find that out, but well, he he Twain goes on and on about the blue laws mm-hmm. at the, um, in extended footnotes or whatever mm-hmm. they are. Um, the the number of things that could get you, you know, head chopped off or hung or ears snipped off or whatever, really horrible, right? And we ha- we go through a bunch of those experiences. Um, under Edward, right? Or right. No, sorry, the fake Edward, Tom as the fake Edward. Um, he, he has to pardon a bunch of people or use his wise judgment. Yeah. Times, but those, there's a lot of, um, sort of torturous, uh, things that happen to the real prince. Um, when he's King Fufu as well. And the, the chapter, uh, chapter 22, chapter 23 in there. Um, some hilarious things happen, right? I mean, it is not a joke book in the way that a lot of the Mark Twain stuff is sort of, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of funny dialogue, but there's a lot of situational humor here. It's a lot of satire, yeah. Yeah, uh, but also real, right? Because yeah. he, he will cite it, too. Yeah. Um, in Chapter 23, the one I, I did with my students, it was just, it struck me how hilarious some of this, the situational um scenes are in i think it's 23 um the judge uh he's 23 he's in the forest sort oh, of doing okay. robin hood thing um and they oh. the the outlaws come together and they and the, the ruffler ruffler yeah. the ruffler deems that that this new king of theirs needs to be uh put to work and so they put him to work oh, yeah. as a a beggar yeah. refuses to beg. They put him to work as a uh, dishwasher or well, assistant to the tinker, and he threatens the tinker with a soldering iron. Mm-hmm. He, they put him to work as a uh, thief, and he won't steal, yeah. right? Um, but uh, at one point, they they just decided um, they're going to put a climb on him, right? Which which is uh, some sort of can't term it's like a c-a-n-t right yeah it makes an ulcer yeah, yeah it makes an ulcer gives them an ulcerated leg yeah right so they're gonna jump on him they they pin him to the ground they're gonna strap this thing on his leg make it look really gross and then put him out on the side of the road with a slatternly woman and a diseased baby <laughs> <laughs> i just couldn't get past the, the diseased baby the slatternly woman and the prince with a with a really gross looking leg sitting on the side of the road. And then Mark Twain puts a citation on it, <laughs> saying from the English road, this is real. And <laughs> here's how you make one. <laughs> here's the recipe. In case you want to make it wrong. <laughs> so, um, like I said, there's not a lot of jokes, but there are, there's, there's a lot of situational humor like that. Oh, yeah. And, well, and the, also in, and like you say, I mean, a lot of that is just used for atmosphere and to move the story along a little bit, but it's still funny. But one of my favorite funny parts is when they bring the daughter 
and mother who are witches for mm. Tom to judge. And he's, and he does something no one expects. He goes, oh, you can make a storm come just by pulling your stockings down. Do it. Yeah. And they're like, no. whoa, what? Everybody around him. No, no, no. And he's like, oh, I cannot wait to see this. I've been wanting to see witchcraft my whole life. Do it, do it, do it. They're like, we're trying, we're trying. So I'll let you go. We're trying, we're, we're pulling our stockings up and down. And he's like, well, I guess you're not really. It's the witches. wisdom of Solomon. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, and, but from the mouths of babes, because he's not doing it to expose that there are no witches. He really, really, really wants to see it. Yeah. And then he's like, well, damn it. Okay. But if you, if you figure out how to do it, come back and show me. Right. So they have to let him go. I I read it the other way that he didn't think there were witches. No, I, he was was too innocent, I think. Uh, You're supposed to be able to slip flop, right? Because we don't see it from Tom's point of view. We hear of Tom's words. We assume that that's what's going to happen. And he's, being wise like he was in the similar situation, yeah, sort of foolishly wise, out of the mouths of babes, as Julie said. Yeah, because it says co- that adults came to regard him as most gifted and extraordinary creature. Right. Like he's That's... already thought of as, as somebody who w- wise and, and knowing. But that's because and... he's applying native common sense to it. Because it says in here, it says, this astonished Tom had also fired his curiosity to fever heat. He said eagerly, it is wonderful. Hath it always this dread effect? And then he turns to the woman with impetuous zeal, you know, and it says, all this stuff is lost on Tom, who was dead to everything but the proposed cataclysm. You know, and so it's, they're telling you how he feels. They're telling you that he is, the irony is, is that any normal, untrained, unlettered person with average common sense would not believe this. And it's not that he wouldn't believe it. He does believe it. But he would expose it for what it is because he doesn't stop and think. He just goes, oh, my gosh, I want to see this. Like any boy would of that age, I feel. That's why it's ironic. There's a parallel scene that I thought was really interesting um, when Tom is in prison or jail. Uh, Right. (laughs) (laughs) Edward is in jail. Sorry. As Tom. Yeah. Um, He meets uh, a woman and her daughter also who are jailed yeah. improperly and their crime Baptists. <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they're executed or something. He stopped it in time. The only, the only one he couldn't save was the, um, I thought they said the guy who was accused of killing the stag. Who, who burned? Who did he watch burn? Oh, well, maybe it was say, them then. Maybe I it was. Yeah, I, it I was think, them, I think. I think, that, I think, yeah, the girl jumps on her mom, and she was burned to death with her mom. Yeah. Okay, I guess you're right. Okay, I'd forgotten that. Because uh, I was I think, so amazed at the end that everything turned out okay for most, I mean, all the other people he was pardoning. Yeah, I was yeah. a little surprised that they were burned like that as well. And it was interesting that, that it affected him so much. And earlier in the book, it had said that Tom had watched a procession to watch somebody go get burned at the stake, too. Right. He had just but watched he, it and went, oh, look at that. Yeah, he, but he was he was watching the, them for the uniforms and stuff yeah. rather yeah. than yeah. for the uh, prurient interest like of a seeing boy. somebody's flesh, you know crisp and such yeah Ugh. so yeah there's some gruesome stuff in here but I, I i think he does i mean in that burning scene we don't see their whole Mm-mm. bodies right we see their legs no we see 
a little bit of their what they say and we're we we get the point <laughs> yeah and you don't ever feel it it's not brought home the way in Huckleberry Finn, things are brought home, where uh, Jim is used to emphasize the humanity of the people who are being treated that way. We see it in this book, but it's kept a bit more at a distance, you know, which also kind of goes along with it being a kid's book. And also just he's not trying. That's not the main point he's making. Yeah, it's, not, it's not a satire. Know? That's the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of his stuff is satirical mm-hmm. or in that vein, right? Yeah. The Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's right. Court is making fun of the United States and everything else. And the version of England he has there is is not really England. It's sort of romantic England, right? Yeah. Romantic yeah. Middle Ages. This is know how. Yeah. I mean he's making fun of Yankees, he's making fun of uh people, he's making Tradition, fun of everything. All sorts of yeah, yeah. ridiculous things. I mean, there is a very similar witchcraft sort of scene in uh, mm. in that book, but that it it it's playing satire. This is much more straightforward historical sort of thing. More maybe a little yeah. more Ivanhoe ish than it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's a little bit romanticized, but uh, you remember the um, uh, what's it? What's the uh, the hero. He's played by Errol Flynn in the 1937. Hendon? A Hendon. What's uh, Miles Hendon, right? Yeah. Miles Hendon, uh, Errol Flynn doesn't show up for quite a bit into that movie, uh, the 1937 movie, mm-hmm. because he doesn't really need to go into the plot until quite late, right? Yeah. Um, which makes it sort of not as well known, I think, uh, for Errol Flynn movies. But it really turns into an action movie when he shows up. <laughs> until then, it's just sort of you know, pomp and circumstance. That's what he did. Yeah. And then there's the, the 1977 one movie um, where he's played by Oliver Reed. Oh, um, okay. And I quite like that version. Did you see that one, Misa? I did see it. Um, I I was tainted by Ringo, which I liked <laughs> so much better. <laughs> um, I, that, that movie, I felt, I, I thought it, the, I think the, my problem was with the director. I, th- I thought he took it too much in the melodramatic kind of mockery way. Mm. The, and and he, wa- he made it too heavy. I mean, I know that it's a heavy story, but he really uh, made it too heavy for, for me. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it sort of doesn't know what it's doing. Yeah, it's like it was, a, it was a It's sort of a, it's a half comedy, half satire, half this and that. And it's got a weird cast. I mean, uh, who's um, Ernest Borgnine plays uh, Tom Canty's dad. Okay. Uh, which is kind of a weird casting decision, <laughs> but I like to see Ernest Borgnine and stuff, so that's interesting. And uh, I Raquel Welsh. Um, Raquel Welsh, right? Yes, yeah. Because see, yeah, I was thinking. I suddenly you said Oliver Reed, and when I think of Oliver Reed, I think of the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. which was done in, in about that same time period. And it wasn't, maybe Raquel Welsh wasn't in that. It might've been Faye Dunaway, but they're kind of in some of those roles, they're interchangeable that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of beauty uh, in that yep. kind of role. And I was like, I wonder if that was the same director or it was just I, yeah, building the, on that trend. The the thing about this was nobody believed him at any point. Not that anybody believes him in uh, in the story, but in in the story, Hendon is sympathetic to him, and in in this movie, he's 
uh, sort almost he's um he doesn't believe him and, and there's there's anger and and ne- he's much more negative toward him oh okay he's not as yeah, yeah. In, the, in the book he's, he's just he's not sympathetic him but good-heartedly no, not, yeah. not until the, the end yeah it's sort of the opposite yeah. of the errol flynn version where everything's a joke you know and he's beating people up and everybody's laughing ha yeah, he's like twisting somebody's oh, some old guy's nose, and then we we laugh because it's not real, right? Yeah, <laughs> he did that in real life. We'd say, "You monster!" Uh, <laughs> yeah, but he's Errol Flynning it all but over the Errol place. Errol Flynn, Errol... you can't hate him, right? Exactly, because <sighs> he's got that. He's tall. He's an Australian, right? Roguish twinkle in his eye. Um, but I, I think, uh, yeah, and Raquel Welch uh, plays the the wife of his brother oh. who was his former love right. so it, there's sort of a heavy focus on that and i do like to think about miles as sort of our viewpoint character on on the prince mm-hmm. and i think that works really well when you think about it in the book and i think that's why they sort of overemphasize it in the movie um as well because we don't really see it from the prince's point of view we see it much yeah. more from miles's point of yeah. view yeah but uh, also, Charlton Heston is oh, yeah. the king of England. <laughs> uh, Henry, Henry VIII. Well, and he was also, he was Count weird. Richelieu in the Three Musketeers. He's every every historical male figure. Yeah. <laughs> Moses, Jesus. <laughs> he's all, he's all uh, the time travelers from the 1970s movies and <laughs> the 60s. Yeah. He, the Omega Man. He was everyone. He's a, he, he was the Omega Man. He knows about everybody eating people and mm-hmm. he so yeah he's everywhere in the 1970s but I, I i thought it was pretty good um now the reason i bring this up is because i because i watched the two two movies i read the classic comics i read the book wow. i read the audiobook wow. i'm thinking i don't know if this is actually in the the paper book the audiobook <laughs> anymore but i can't I, remember I, I can't remember but i think it's in there and I, and if it's not, it's in one of the movies, and I thought it was a great addition. What is it? Um, that is Miles's brother. Um, at the end of the book, is uh, divorced from his wife, or emerges an old or whatever, yeah. and he's kicked out. But he isn't punished. But that's okay. He's sent to the American colonies and becomes a politician. Oh no, that's not. Uh, it's not no. in the book. Mm-mm. Okay, I thought that was a brilliant. Well, he goes off and dies <laughs> somewhere because they don't. They have to wait until he dies. Okay, wait. Here it is, right here. Um, he did go to the continent. He deserted his wife, mm-hmm. and he goes to the continent, and then he dies, and then she can marry Miles. And by and by, the Earl of Kent married his relict, which is the wife. So. So they don't even annul it or anything. Yeah. They just Wait. take everything away from him. I thought that he became a politician was just a great addition. <laughs> it was worked. sort of a dig back at the at the you know making it more sat- satirical. So that that's probably in one of the movies. Or... Yeah, I think it was in the nineteen seventy seven movie because I thought that's how it ended too. Yeah, because it's very faithful to what happens in the book, even if all the you know mm-hmm. negative things we might say about it it's very faithful to the book um yeah the 1937 is not as faithful well and the idea in in the 1970s the idea that they just go well we're taking all your stuff away but they don't rectify the situation with the wife they just have to wait until you know he leaves her Mm -hmm. and she he goes off and dies and they have to wait till he dies before the 
the true loving couple can get married is not yeah. very 1970s movie style. So, no, you know, they fixed. It. Yeah, it, it turned it into a comedy sort of at the end, too. <laughs> yeah, they it became very. Yeah, at the very end, they did. Um, So there's there's one other aspect of that relationship, the Miles um, and his brother. When Miles comes back, he he's the in a parallel situation. I guess we we talked about this a bit, um, but the Ra- Raquel Welch, who what what is that character's name in the book? I can't uh, remember. Edith. Edith. Yeah, e- I think. Lady somebody. Yeah. Jeez. Hmm. Now now I can't remember no, what I was going to um, make. Oh well. I'm just, I'll look through the notes. Maybe that'll Yeah. Oh, uh, the hospital. The children's hospital thing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, this is kind of, I think, I think they make a point of that in the movie as well, is that Tom becomes the head of that, mm-hmm. uh, chairman of the board or something of that hospital. For life. Right. Yeah. And this apparently is, uh, you know, like these... There's a lot of interesting notes. It's like when when he did visit Europe, uh, and I guess especially oh, England. Yeah. Um, he bought a lot of books. He read a lot of books. This is Twain, I mean. Yeah. And, and then made tons of notes and then started writing novel after novel about it. He, he just wrote about everything in his own life. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, <clears throat> Edith. That is her name. Edith. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, Edith. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, so were you going to say something about Edith? No, just mentioning. trying to remember. Um, that church boys thing. Um, I thought that I thought that was really interesting. When after the prince went through his ordeal there, instead of reacting really badly and saying, "I'm going to come back and you know like throw you all in jail when I become king," he said, "When I'm king." They shall not have bread and shelter only, but also teachings out of books, which is what you're just saying about. Right, right, right. For a full belly's worth is little worth where the mind is starved and the heart. And I'll keep this diligently in my remembrance. Um, right. That this day's lesson be not lost upon me and, and all my people suffer thereby. And and that, and I thought that was um, kind of like what uh, what he's referring like that sentiment kind mm-hmm. of uh, encapsulated his um, the beginning of the book when he quotes the Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. It says, oh. to mercy, uh, tis blessed for him that giveth and not taketh, and him that taketh, tis mightiest in, in the mightiest becomes the throned mo- uh, monarch better than his own crown. Mm-hmm. That totally... Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's the fun thing, is, is that that quote is not about this story, but it is this story too, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I, that's what I dig so much about reading these sort of classic books is because so many writers have read them, they pick up little bits and said, huh, let's go with this. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Twain, having read, uh, Merchant of Venice, having had these experiences says, I'll make a classic tale. And he, he does. He makes modern fables. Right. Mm hmm. Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court is a modern fable that it's as if it's been with us forever. But no, it actually has a publication year and an author. Yeah. And that's the same story here. And I think it, it, it it's what's so cool about this is that it is absolutely historical fiction. Um, 
And yet it, it's also a complete fable in, in the way a Disney, I mean, I, there's probably a Disney version of this yes, actually. Now that I think is. about it. There is. It's oh, me- is there? I didn't watch it, but it was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah. Mickey Mouse. version. At some point. Yeah, the, well, there's, there's tons of adaptations. There's <laughs> yeah. plays. It's more than one classics comic version as well. But it's that timeless story. And I was just thinking um, when you were talking about, you know, the Merchant of Venice and Mercy and all this. And, and of course, his point is this is his uh, big point always is that if we remember the humanity of the people around us because we relate to them as people, then things would be better. And, mm-hmm. and that's what you, and what's kind of interesting. I, I don't know why I hadn't thought of this until I was listening to you guys talk, but it's that whole idea of it doesn't matter if you're the poorly educated, unlettered kid who's thrust into this position, or you're the very well educated, uh, person who's trained to be a person of power when you're put into unusual situations, if you apply your humanity to it, because you're all shaken up, the usual stuff doesn't work. Um, that's when you get your anchor in reality that it's person to person that matters, whether you're a monarch or a poor person, you know, that's how you change everything. And that's, that's really, when you look at that going forward, I guess that's the point of all his books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that's all true, but the people that he gives the most humanity to throughout this book are the kids. The Mm -hmm. the two boys are the ones that are willing to forego all the crazy uh, laws and forgive and say, we have to change this. Mm -hmm. Two little girls in the barn, when they found him, they said, oh, you're the prince? Sure, great, come on. Then they believe him. And the prince says, I'm going to honor children always and remember how they trust me and believe me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're the most pure of heart. Yeah. 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 It's funny, isn't it? Um, Because... It is historical fiction, but it's aimed at kids. I think it's. Uh, I read a lot of meta stuff around this book, like just the history to see how accurate it was. You know who this Edward kid was, because we don't really hear much about him in history. Um, he had a short but, reign. Yeah, he died at fifteen. Yeah, this, was it this probably they were supposed to be ten at the time of this or so. Uh, yeah, I was thinking between nine, age nine and eleven or yeah. something like that, right? Um, in some of the, uh, I think the 77 movie, he's more of a teenager, yeah. young teenager, something like that. Um, the romantic relationship that happens uh, is sort of absent from this. <laughs> I don't think, well, the, the his cousin Lady Jane oh, got it. Um, um, is in at least a couple of the movies, there's a little hint That's, that she's yeah, his girlfriend. Yeah, a teenager, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, yeah, in the 77 movie, she, that's sort of the, co- the comic ending is she, is she, uh, she ends up, she spurns the Tom who's fallen in love with her and marries a rich old Earl or something, but that doesn't prevent them from spending all their time together <laughs> yes. climbing over the rail. The Romeo and Juliet there. Yeah, exactly. It is a Romeo and Juliet sort of ending there. Mm-hmm. Um, but a comedic Romeo and Juliet. Um, which I think, I mean, it undermines the spirit of the book in a lot of ways because these are sort of, <laughs> but it doesn't really matter because it's sort of its own thing. But in reading the book, I think you come away with a really good sense of what what the history of England at that period is is like. 
Mm-hmm. And yet, um, the, the main character and his adventures with his twin, who's from another mother, <laughs> yes, um, my brother, are completely false. Yeah, and that that's really good historical fiction. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, because that's being used to point out all the things as they're put into that historical setting. It, it reminds me a lot of Ivanhoe. Uh, we did that show as well. I remember. And, and I really, uh, you know, I, the Sir Walter Scott was playing maybe a little looser with um, his citations. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he may, maybe he's just wrong. But we, it's also farther uh, long ago than so it's hard. Close There's enough. less historical sources, right? Yeah, close enough. But, yeah, I so this is about as far away from uh, SFF as I, I will go. <laughs> <laughs> However, that said, I'm going to be doing Moby Dick later. Oh, my gosh. And um, I, I can do that because uh, Wrath of Khan is Moby Dick. Oh, yes, <laughs> totally. <laughs> as well as a couple other things thrown yeah. in there. William Shatner being the white whale. Yeah. And the, um, and the next gen movie as well with, with the one when Captain Picard actually quotes um, Moby Dick in the Hollow Suite. Oh, is there an episode? No, it's the movie. It's a movie. Well, there's more than one movie with them. No, yeah. No, the one when they, um, when the Borg come back to earth and hmm. uh, with that one. Patrick Stewart also did a Moby Dick movie, which I will did he? probably mm-hmm. watch. I believe so. Yeah, a TV movie. Um, did you did you notice the line when when Mark Twain um he was with the whipping boy look when went yeah. and and like he po- he he does that whole meta thing on his own story. Mm-hmm. Said that God should make two such. He says when he sees Hendon, he says, "Could this be the same guy that God could make two such would be to cheapen miracles by wasteful repetition." I would contrive to excuse yeah blah 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 but that was that, that was a pretty great line. Yep, he's he's a real talented writer. This Mark Twain, yeah, I, I he, really he will is. go far, he's going places. This guy. Yep. Well, I like the um, and above all, he just takes. He's also doing a reality check on us, which is why the story works so well. Because I really love the point that. Um, when the two kids have met and the prince is saying, what do you guys do with your time? I'm busy all the time, but what do you do? And so he's saying, oh, you know, I have my own little court I've set up and, you know, we, um, we strive against each other with the cudgel. The prince's eyes flashed, said he, marry that. I, that would I, ugh, that would not I mislike. Tell me more. We strive in races, sir, to see who of us shall be fleetest. Ooh, that I would like also. Speak on. In summer, sir, we wade and swim in the canals. And he's like, oh, man, I can't wait to do all this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the other kid is um, wishing and wishing that he could be like the king. And then when he's lying there in bed and then, I guess, waking up again and finding out he's still stuck there, he says his old dreams had been so pleasant, but this reality was so dreary. Because he's thinking about the Duke of Norwich going to be executed. And it's just, and of course, the prince, when he's in reality, reality is not at all right, because neither of them is trained for the other way of living. And it's 
kind of that be careful what you wish for the whole thing. Yeah, the grass is always greener thing. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that's the delicious irony that it makes it good for kids. If that's who he really wrote it for, depending on what age of kids. But I mean, we all need to be reminded of that sometimes. Yeah, that it was just does it so point. amusingly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know uh, what to make of personal relationships between adult humans and their non-children offsprings. I, I mean, some a, what? a lot of people. I don't know if, if you're if you're hanging out with kids and they're not your kids, mm-hmm. it's kind of creepy um, for a lot of people. Um, if you're not used to it, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'm a teacher. I hang out with little kids all day. <laughs> I mean, it's not. I prefer teenagers because they've read more books. Right. <laughs> um, Conversations better. Yeah, and they they their attention is slightly. I mean, not always. Some every kid's different, but. As a general rule, really little kids, sort of my intellectual stimulation is not as high. You know, <laughs> well, I can do Lego. Jesse, with so that okay. <laughs> but there was, there was a relationship between uh, Mark Twain and a child that was not his. And I think it's a really cool relationship. And I don't think that it was creepy in, at all, even though... Um, I mean, looking at it from today's perspective where, you know, oh, he's hanging out with a child who's not his own. That's kind of creepy. I think he was just a, a really cool guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the actual story. But there's this woman named Dorothy Quick who uh, was born in 1896. Twain was not young when he met her. Um, he was, uh, I don't know, getting into these, you know, white hair phase <laughs> at least, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in at age of 11... Oh. Uh, she met him on a transatlantic crossing um, while their par- her parents were on this ship. It's like they're on a cruise or something, right? <laughs> this young girl meets Mark Twain, and they be- they form a friendship that lasts until Twain dies. Wow, neat. And she um, she there's no Wikipedia entry on here. Uh, there is a there is a Disney movie actually about their relationship, which is pretty funny. Um, but uh, she, what I know her for is she was a writer of Weird Tales um, in Weird Tales magazine, and she wrote tons of uh, uh, poems that also I quite like. Um, that are all in Weird Tales, starting from the 1930s going into the 50s, and she also mm-hmm. wrote. For things that weren't in Weird Tales, but I mean, if I had met Mark Twain as oh, a yeah. kid, I think I would have been uh, fallen under his spell. Oh, yeah. totally. Did he mentor her? Do you know? I, I'm pretty sure he did. I, I mean, they he seemed to have a really good relationship with his own kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's almost nothing um, about her. There's no Wikipedia entry, and you know, I I haven't I've only read her her writings. I haven't read her, her, her fiction. I haven't read her biography or anything like that, but there is a, um, uh, New York times, uh, obituary, which I will read, which I thought was really cool. Dorothy quick poet and author mystery writer dies was friend of Mark Twain. This is from March uh, 16th, 1962, the New York times, Mm -hmm. Miss Dorothy quick mayor of 88 park Avenue and East Hampton, uh, a writer who treasured a childhood friendship with Mark Twain died yesterday at the home 
here after a long illness. Miss Quick was a girl of 11 in 1907 when she met famous author on a Atlantic crossing. She was returning from Plainfield, New Jersey, from Europe, uh, to Plainfield, New Jersey, from Europe with her parents, the late Mr. and Mrs. Henry Quick. Recognizing Twain, Samuel L. Clemens, by the, his wavy hair and white suit, <laughs> she walked around and around the deck, passing very slowly by his chair every time, <laughs> until he finally came over and introduced himself. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it was the beginning of a friendship that was to last until the very day of his death, 1910, <laughs> she recalled in 1954. After the voyage, she received a telegram from Twain asking whether she would prefer a birthday present of one elephant or 10,000 monkeys. <laughs> she replied that she would prefer his books, which he sent her along with a tiny white elephant. Her, her memories of Mark Twain were published last year by the University of Oklahoma Press under the title Enchantment. Miss mm-hmm. Quick was married in 1925 to John Adams Mayer, who died in 1940. She continued to write under her maiden name. Her collected poems were published by University of Press in Washington. She also wrote mystery stories contributed a weekly column for many years to newspapers in East Hampton and Riverhead, Long Island. Since 1960, Miss Quick has been, yeah, Miss Quick has been an honorary president of the Mark Twain Association of New York. <laughs> Her other literary membership include the Pen Club, the Pen and Brush Club, the National League of Pen Women, the Brooklyn Poetry Center, the Circle Women's Poet of New York, and Spy- Society of Composers, Artists, and Authors. So, if you met, if you saw your kid hanging out with a strange man on a boat, mm-hmm. uh, you would probably like get away from him, right? But, dude, this guy was a nice guy. I think. Well, it, but it also just said he was already famous by then. The parents. Said, yeah. Oh yeah, he was way famous. So she was the one to recognize him. Yeah. Not the parents, right? Well. She, but I also <laughs> like that she's strolling strolling around the decks by herself. This is from an earlier time. Mm-hmm. Well, and also these days, I would say this is something my husband points out a lot is we overly sexualize everything. And Absolutely. you have terrible, terrible examples that are broadcast over and over and without remembering that that's a tiny percentage of any of the other very healthy nurturing relationships like this, which just brings yes. joy to both sets of people. And, you know, everything, we look at it all and we just see the worst it can be without going, let's evaluate, you know, and that whole, that telegram to me is the one that said, oh, he gets it. He understands Mm -hmm. her and kids that age and all that kind of thing. And um, I just love that story because it also reminds us that there are tons of stories that you'll read about from people who will go, there was an old neighbor next door and he Mm -hmm. or she filled in all these places that I never would have had in my life. Otherwise, a lot of times artists and writers will say that, mm-hmm. you know, cause one set of adults can't be everything to you. That's right. So, and look at how she wrote and wrote and wrote and how influential she might've been to other people and mm-hmm. all those pen associations and everything. Um, surely he had that influence on her. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. And she's got some really good poems that I really enjoyed. And uh, I think look for her, you know, the thing is, is you don't see his influence all over her, her, her poems. You know, they're not Twain ripoffs. Right. But they never would be. Right. Mm -hmm. That's when, when two great writers meet each other and they influence each other, they never end up writing the exact same stuff. Right. Oh yeah. Brad 
H.G. Wells. Loved H.G. Wells. Then he writes his version of an H.G. Wells yeah. story. It, it's almost unrecognizable as being H.G. Wells. Yeah. Right. Poe and Dickens, um, Melville and Hawthorne, who were really good friends for a while. Um, yeah, you have all these things. Well, Wilkie Collins and, and Dickens are closer, but not the same. I mean, a lot of times you look at these people and you go, wow, all these people were friends. And they all did stuff that was so different from each other. Similar, yeah, did, different you know, somehow. Uh, you'll like this, Julie. Uh, Poe uh, po was reading the mystery of Edwin Drood, I think it was. Oh, huh. Um, and he uh, he anticipated. No, it wasn't. It's mystery. my last one to read, so don't it wasn't. That, that's the unfinished, so it can't be that one. <laughs> yeah. um, anyways, there was a ser- serialized adventure uh, by. Dickens that was being mm-hmm. published in the States and uh, Poe wrote to Dickens and anticipated the ending. That, <gasps> really? Yeah. And uh, apparently uh, Dickens thought that was pretty cool. Ah, interesting. Well, I know that um, Dickens was in America and Poe was really, really struggling as a writer, and he wrote to him, and his letter was so persuasive, his fan letter, because Dickens was in Baltimore, I guess, or wherever. <laughs> and so he agreed to meet him alone for lunch. Wow. And they met for lunch, and Dick- Poe was so excited, but he noticed Dickens seemed kind of bummed out, and he said, well, what's wrong? And he goes, well, I just found out we, you know, we have our pet raven, who I, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm not kidding. This really happened. And the pet raven, and, and this is mentioned at the end of uh, Barnaby Rudge, because Barnaby has a pet raven who's modeled on their favorite pet raven. But when they were going to come to America, and so Dickens said, I took my family for a two-week vacation, and we left the raven in the barn with all his food, because that had always worked before. And they came back, and oh. the raven had found this paint can. Uh-oh. And oh, no. they're so curious and they'd seen the, the workman painting and he opened it up and drank the paint, which had a lot of oh, lead no. in it and it killed him. And he goes, and then right after we come back and my beloved pet is dead, I have to leave for America. And it's just, I'm so sad. Mm. And that Poe had been struggling with a particular poem. Mm. Yeah. That's- and he went back and put the Raven in it. Wow. Wow. It's, that's a true story. Wow. Um, but it's the kind of thing where you just go, holy moly. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. But can you imagine the excitement of Poe, who's just struggling and struggling, and Dickens says, I will meet you for lunch. And he's like, yeah. Yeah. Dickens is, is the epitome of success as oh, a writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Poe, who everyone agreed, had talent. I mean, even his oh, yeah. critics, they hated him. Because he was so talented. Yeah. Right? It wasn't because, you know, they disagreed with his philosophy. It was because they hated him because he was so talented. And because he was sa- he would savage other people's writings. I was just going to say, his reviews views. were pretty scathing, usually. Yes. I mean, that he would make of other people. He was. But I read some of the stuff that, that was being written that wasn't Poe back then. Oh, man, so much of it is dreadful. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the reason we read Hawthorne today is because there isn't. You know, he's right. good and he's great, but um, his contemporaries, really, there was very few that were very, you know, of any skill. Well, and that's why a lot of the old stories, it's great to read these classics because that's when you go, this is so great. But there were thousands of other books out there, too, that we never heard of again. And there's a reason why, usually, mm-hmm. you know, occasionally you'll discover somebody who you really like. But 
they're not, you know, Twain or whoever. Well, I'm I'm pleased we had the opportunity to revisit this one. Or yeah, thank you. Case for Misa, visit it for the first time. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed I it. I can't yeah. imagine, uh, you know, if I was reviewing my life and saying, uh, should you skip the Prince and the Pauper next, you know, or next go round? <laughs> uh, no, 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 definitely not. Put that in. Yeah, definitely, definitely put that in. It's a very good book. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, because I would not have reread it. It just wasn't even on my radar. And there was so much in there I didn't remember. So if anybody listening, if you think you know it, you don't know it. Mm -hmm. It's worth a reread from one who just read it once. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. One, two, three, four. No. How do they do Yeah. It's like the start kicking your legs out. Yeah. Choreography. I did a, yeah, I, one of my students yesterday, he was talking about John Cena. I was like, that name's fairly, fairly, he's like a, he's like the Hulk Hogan of today. Oh, okay. I have a little, I put a little video of him. Ask him the question, is wrestling real? And he says, yes, wrestling is real. <laughs> That's when you know you're getting just a little older. Choreography. <laughs> <laughs> it's real fun, maybe. <laughs> oh. It's, 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 um, uh, burly man's dancing. Burly oh, man. really? So burly, burly, girly men. Mm-mm. Burly, manly, burly, burly, yeah. burly big, men, not big, girly, clumsy, burly. hulky guys. Got U R L Y, yes, right, yes, coordinated uh, slam dancing or whatever it is. <laughs> oh, slam dancing, not like ballroom <laughs> dancing. That's why I thought they were burly, girly men. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's. I was thinking Hulk Hogan, and I was going, I'm already laughing. Yeah. Um, that kind of guy. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh Right. We're doing a podcast. Here we go. Ready? Okay.